a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I do appreciate you, whoever you are, for taking a chance and tuning into this program. I mention this once in a while, but I think it bears mentioning once again, I never have a clue how many people actually hear what I'm putting out there in terms of content. And sometimes that's a good thing, because if you get caught up in the numbers, you know, that can become kind of an obsessive thing. And, oh, man, the numbers didn't go up by this much today, or they went down this far today, and it can get inside your head. And some time ago, I adopted this this idea, or I adopted the, I guess it's it's a principle of quit worrying about the numbers. Quit worrying about how many people or who is listening. Quit worrying about whether or not they agree. Just put the truth out there the very best you can, you know, the best you understand, because it's not like I have a perfect understanding of truth. And let those who are seeking truth find it. If it's one person, two people, you know, a dozen people, doesn't matter. Put it out there in such a way that when they find it, they know this is what I was looking for. So that's what I do. And, and I appreciate, I can't tell you how much I love and appreciate those of you who take the time to, to give me feedback, to tell me, hey, just wanted to, you know, I've been listening. Um, I, I so appreciate those of you who do regular contributions. And, and you know, I, I don't talk about this much, but uh, there are those who send 5 or $10 a month just, you know, as a way of supporting the program. I appreciate that. I take that money as, as a very sacred trust meaning that uh, my Ferrari is going to have to wait for a while. Um, I use it to keep the lights on and to to do what I do. But I also feel like there's a stewardship here. I feel like, you know, that, where does this may sound to some people? I believe I will stand before God one day and will account for how I used my voice to either bless or inflict, you know, some kind of anxiety on, you know, his children. And I take that pretty seriously. Because I'm, I'm much more concerned about pleasing God than I am about, uh, you know, pleasing, you know, the masses and finding accolades, you know, from, from the people with power and influence in the world. Frankly, the more I look around, the more I, I see that uh, to get into those ranks, you got to be willing to sell your soul in a buyer's market. I'm not willing to do that. And I trust that you aren't either, which is probably why you're giving me a listen. And again, thank you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being part of my audience. So what do I do here? If you're just if you're new, tuning in for the first time, well, I talk crap. That's what I do. I talk crap for about an hour and just uh, fill your head with the most fearful fantasies and scary things that you can possibly imagine. And, and I do it so that uh, you will look to me as the one true source of knowledge. All right, I'm joking. I don't do that, but um, sometimes I do touch on some pretty you know, difficult subjects. And it's, it's not that I wouldn't rather be having fun and talking about things that are lighthearted and easy, but we live in some pretty challenging times. I think even, even people who are really averse to, look, I don't want any bad news, have to admit, at some level, things are not right. <laughs> you look around you, there's plenty to, to confirm that, yeah, this, this is not uh, a positive direction that we seem to be heading as a society, in fact, as a world. Now, thankfully... If you have some perspective, especially if you have a bit of spiritual perspective, 
you understand that this is part of a long, drawn-out, eternal battle between light and darkness. And it's been going on since long before we came along, and, and it, uh, it's, it's part of an eternal struggle between light and darkness. All the conflict we see, the names and faces might change, but the dynamics that drive that struggle have not changed. Frankly, I think it's kind of a privilege to be, you know, a part of that struggle and, and hopefully be standing for, for what is, is right. In fact, let me jump in here. I just, I'm going to jump right in. <clears throat> James Howard Kunstler always has a pretty solid take on whatever's going on. And he starts out his latest column, which was published today on lewrockwell.com, with a quote from Marcus Aurelius. The object of life is not to be on the side of the majority, but to f- escape finding oneself in the ranks of of the insane. I mean, those words were spoken or written a long time ago, but have they ever rang more true than they ring today? The object of life is not to be on the side of the majority, but to escape finding oneself in the ranks of the insane. I think that's what we're trying to do here. I think you and I are trying to make sure that we're not uh, in the ranks of the insane. And there's a lot of insanity to go around. So let's talk about the showdown slowdown. Here's James Howard Kunstler's take. He says, what's up with the dragging out of the vote count in Arizona and Nevada, promising to to deliver the last 20% of the vote by a certain hour and then missing their deadline more than once while dribbling out a few packets of, shall we say, choice cuts here and there? He says, I'll tell you what it is. It's an organized mind F word. The Democrats are aiming to demoralize their adversaries and exhaust them psychologically so that when victory finally comes, the winners will be too emotionally depleted to do their end zone dances and the voters will be too dispirited to cheer. Now, in Arizona, of course, you have the peculiar situation in which the Democratic Party's candidate for governor, Katie Hobbs, happens to be the state secretary of state, meaning the official in charge of elections. Now, you might think she'd be embarrassed at blowing two ballot counts in a row or that a court somewhere might show an interest in her amazingly convenient incompetence in this particular official duty. In any case, the drama continued through early Friday morning. The catch for the party of chaos was that almost all of the still outstanding ballots were cast by Election Day voters rather than mail-ins. Election Day votes are statistically more likely to have been cast by Republicans who dislike and avoid sketchy mail-in ballots and are thus likely to overwhelmingly favor Katie Hobbs' opponent, Carrie Lake, the charismatic former TV news reporter who, on the campaign trail, made Miss Hobbs look about as appealing as a barrel cactus. Delaying the final vote count also provides cover for some of the most common election shenanigans, such as manufacturing extra votes or finding boxes of overlooked ballots stashed under tables and in broom closets. Gee, look at what's here! Alleged President Joe Biden, beneficiary of Ms. Hobbs' 2020 election supervision, predicted weeks ago that election results would be many a day coming in. Well, that was uh, set up too, of course, although Joe Biden said it would set it to the TV cameras. Most likely, it was something that lawfare ninja Mark Elias thought up and whispered in White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain's ear, who told Joe Biden to say it. The basic Democratic Party election strategy in recent decades has been to turn the voting public into so many millions of proverbial froggies in the pot of water set to slowly rise to boiling that the froggies don't notice they're getting cooked until it's too late to jump out of the pot. The Democrats' lawfare soldiers have slowly and systematically changed the methods of voting and counting the votes, especially to eliminate accountability for the massive scans and screw-ups that have occurred recently. And the changes have been accepted as normal. 
Now, one insidious change was shutting down the small local precinct polling places in churches and schools where it was easy to get in, get your signature checked, and vote on site, and where the precinct captains and workers were known and accountable to voters in the neighborhood. Instead, lawfare got states to consolidate all the action in huge impersonal voting centers, often sports arenas, where hundreds of election workers churned and all sorts of frauds went unnoticed in the enormous shuffle of activity. It was also harder to get in and vote at such a giant venue on game day when thousands showed up and long lines formed, which made it easier for interested parties to justify the expansion of mail-in balloting. It's just possible that COVID-19 was introduced in 2020 to make sure that election day in-person voting would look hazardous and with mail-ins becoming the dominant method. I mean, it sure helped get rid of Donald Trump. Among the conclusions of the 2005 Commission on Federal Election Reform, co-chaired by Democratic former President Carter and Republican former Secretary of State James Baker, was that mail-in voting is the easiest way to invite cheating and fraud. What we got starting, or no one listened, rather, except for lawfare's uh, Mark Elias, who saw that as a good thing. And what we got starting in 2020 and continuing today are the creative refinements of that as fraudsters apply their zillions of dollars to new ways of stealing elections. As Mark Zuckerberg did in Wisconsin, literally switching out elect local election officials with Democratic Party activists. Then there are the as-yet-unresolved issues with the Dominion voting machines and their software. Are the machines enabled to hook into the Internet? It seems to me that this has been proven. Why is it so hard to admit these machines are janky and unnecessary? A thousand voices have pointed out that other nations, France, for instance, use only paper ballots and manage to report the election results the night of. Now, Arizona's a whole hell of a lot smaller than France, and even Florida, which thoroughly reformed its election laws under Governor DeSantis and published the midterm, midterm results the same night. Speaking of uh, Mr. DeSantis and Mr. Trump, <clears throat> he says... The ex-president has been verbally laying into the Florida governor so viciously that he might have made a fatal error in his quest for electoral redemption. The opponents of progressive woke Jacobinism don't need a circus ringmaster, they need a credible ringleader. Especially, or credible leader, rather. <laughs> Sorry. Especially one that can manage his or her emotions at least as well as Vladimir Putin does. Like I said, James Howard Kunstler has a... He has a way with words, but I think this guy is really spot on in so much of what he writes. There is a link which you can follow in my show notes if you so choose. You'll find it at thebrianheidshow.com. Click on today's show notes for November 14th, 2022. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd just like to do a quick shout out here to garagedoorproservices.com. I so appreciate Seth and I appreciate his company and everything they are doing for the citizens of St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. Anywhere in that beautiful corner of color country, if you need commercial or residential garage doors installed, serviced, repaired, Call Garage Door Pros at 435-525-2773. Quick response, much faster lead time than other companies will give you. They really pay attention to taking care of their customers. In fact, I'd love for you to prove me out on this. Go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com, and just check out what their customer reviews are saying. 
A lot of great reviews for a great company, Garage Door Pros, whom I'm proud to have as a sponsor. All right, let's jump right in here. And uh, again, I'm, I've got some pretty heavy stuff to share with you today, but I think this is solid information. So hopefully it adds to your understanding of the world and at the same time fortifies you against some of the challenges that we're facing right now. One of the things that I think is, is really essential is that we don't get lulled into the sense that, ah, things have finally returned to normal. I have a great article here from C.J. Hopkins, which says, now nah, we're, we're simply living in the new normal that was intended to move us further down the road to totalitarianism. Here's how he puts it. He says, it feels like it's finally over, doesn't it? The whole apocalyptic pandemic thing. I mean, really, really over this time. Not like all those other times when you thought it was over, but it wasn't. And it was like the end of one of those alien movies where it seems like Ripley has escaped, but the aliens hiding out in the shuttle or the escape pod or Ripley's intestinal tract. But this time doesn't feel like that. He says, this time it feels like it's really, really over. Go out, take a look around. Hardly anyone is wearing masks anymore, except where masks are mandatory, or being coerced into submitting to vaccinations, except where vaccination is mandatory. And the hordes of hate-drunk, new-normal fanatics who demanded that the unvaccinated be segregated, censored, fired from their jobs, and otherwise demonized and persecuted have all fallen silent, except for those who haven't. Everything is back to normal, right? Wrong. He says everything is not back to normal. Everything is absolutely new normal. What is over is the shock and awe phase, which was never meant to go on forever. It was only meant to get us here. Where you're probably asking is here? Well, here is the place where the new official ideology has been firmly established as our new reality, woven into the fabric of normal everyday life. No, not everywhere, just everywhere that matters. Do you really think the globalist capitalist ruling classes care what people in Lakeland, Florida, Elk River, Idaho, or some village in Sicily believe about reality? Yes, most government restrictions have been lifted, mainly because they're no longer necessary. But in centers of power throughout the West, in political, corporate, and cultural spheres, in academia, mainstream media, and so on, the new normal has become reality. That's in quotation marks. Or, in other words, just the way it is, which is the ultimate goal of every ideology. He says, for example, I just happened upon this important COVID-19 information, which you need to be aware of and strictly adhere to if you want to attend a performance at this off-Broadway theater in New York City where everything is back to normal. Now, that information says, mask, unless eating or drinking, all guests are required to wear a mask at all times while inside this venue. This venue has additional COVID-19 safety measures to ensure the health and well-being of the staff, performers, and guests. And you have to have proof of vaccine. All guests must be fully vaccinated prior to their performance date in order to attend. Now, here C.J. Hopkins says, look, I could pull up countless further examples, but I don't want to waste your time. At this point, it isn't the mask and vaccination mandates themselves that are important. They're simply the symbols and rituals of the new official ideology, an ideology that's divided societies into two irreconcilable categories of people. Those who are prepared to conform their beliefs to the official narrative of the day, no matter how blatantly ridiculous it is, and otherwise click heels and follow the orders of the global capitalist ruling establishment, no matter how destructive and fascistic they may be. And number two, those who are not prepared to do that. So let's go ahead and call them normals and deviants. I think you know which one you are. 
This division of society into two opposing, irreconcilable classes of people cuts across and supersedes old political lines. There are normals and deviants on both the left and right. The global capitalist ruling establishment couldn't care less whether you're a progressive or a conservative or a libertarian or an anarchist or whatever you call yourself. What they care about is whether you're a normal or a deviant. What they care about is whether you will follow orders. What they care about is whether you are conforming to your perceptions and behavior and thinking of their new reality, the hegemonic global capitalist reality that's been gradually evolving for the last 30 years and is now entering its totalitarian stage. Now, he says, I've been writing about the evolution of global capitalism in my essay since 2016 and since the early 1990s in my stage play, so I'm not going to reiterate the whole story here. Readers who have just tuned into my political satire and commentary during the past two years can go back and read the essays in Trumpocalypse and The War on Populism. But he says the short version is, back in 2016, Global Cap was rolling along, destabilizing, restructuring, privatizing the planet that it came into sole, unchallenged possession of when the Soviet Union finally collapsed. And everything was hunky-dory. And then along came Brexit, Donald Trump, and the whole populist and neo-nationalist right rebellion against globalism throughout the West. So GlobalCap needed to deal with that, which is what it's been doing for the last six years. Yes, the last six, not just the last two and a half years. The war on dissent didn't start with COVID, and it's not going to end with COVID. GlobalCap, or the corporatocracy, if you prefer, has been delegitimizing, demonizing, and disappearing dissent and increasingly imposing ideological uniformity on Western society since 2016. The new normal is just the latest stage of it. Once it gets done quashing this populist rebellion and imposing ideological uniformity on urban society throughout the West, it will go back to destabilizing, restructuring, and privatizing the rest of the world, which is what it was doing with the war on terror and other democracy-promoting products projects rather from 2001 to 2016. So the goal of this global... Gleichschaltung campaign is the goal of every totalitarian system. In other words, to render any and all deviants from its official ideology pathological. The nature of the deviants doesn't matter. The official ideology doesn't matter. In fact, he says Global Cap has no fixed ideology. It can abruptly change its official reality from day to day, as we've experienced recently. And what matters is one's willingness or unwillingness to conform to whatever the official reality is regardless of how ridiculous it is and how many times it's been disproved and sometimes even acknowledged as fiction by the very authorities who nonetheless continue to assert its reality. He says, I'll give you one more concrete example. After I happened upon the COVID restrictions being enforced by that off-Broadway theater, he says, I stumbled across this article in Current Affairs about the oracle Yuval Noah Harari the writer of which the article mentions in passing that somewhere between 6 and 12 million people have died of COVID, as if this were a fact, a fact that no one in their right mind would question, which it is officially in our new reality, despite the fact, in other words, the actual fact that even the health, as the health authorities have admitted, anyone who died of anything in a hospital after testing positive was recorded as a COVID-19 death. Do you remember that? Cooking the numbers? This is how reality, in other words, official reality, consensus reality, is manufactured and policed. It's manufactured and policed not only by the media, corporations, governments, and non-governmental governing entities, but also, and ultimately more effectively, by the constant repetition of official narratives as unquestionable axiomatic facts. 
Now, it's a great commentary here. I hope you'll click on the link. He says, you know, it's it's not a good omen when nations or totally unaccountable supranational global power systems suddenly break out the deviance bucket. He says it's usually a sign that things are going to get ugly. Ugly in a totalitarian fashion, which is precisely what's been happening for the last six years. So if you are touchy about, uh, for instance, uh, what you're being told to believe, you're questioning it, you're engaging in wrong think, guess what? You are being lumped into one great big bucket of deviants, along with the rest of the uh, no-goodniks who refuse to get with the program. All I can tell you is that we're in good company. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out to my other sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, and hslammo.com. Now, there are links to each one of these businesses on my website. And it would mean a lot to me that if you are curious or if you actually you want to do business with them, you want what they're offering, please do so. Let them know that their message reached your ears via this program. All right. I wanted to dive briefly into a, a couple of articles here. Um, just kind of building on what C.J. Hopkins was saying about how the new normal is simply something that was supposed to move us along the road towards greater central control. And, and it's been working very well. But I wanted to also touch on the gaslighting that's happening today and is being directed at all of us who clearly recall just how ugly the last three years have been. Todd Hyen, writing for OffGuardian.org, writes about much ado about nothing. And he says, do, you think, do, do any of you think we're overreacting? In other words, if you're upset about what was done in the last few years, are we overreacting? He says, I don't think so. But he says, the sheep folk certainly do. They claim they're just willing to let bygones be bygones and put it all in the past and get on with life. And he refers the uh, the bombshell editorial that The Atlantic published recently with their amnesty for COVID nonsense. Hey, we all made mistakes. We were all in the dark. But he says, I don't think I've been more livid reading an article since the days of seeing piece after piece about how effective masks are against viral transmission. He says, I'm not going to comment on the Atlantic blather directly here. There have been a lot of fine responses to us, but to it. But wow, what a piece. So typical of a bully trying to pretend he loved his victims all along when he knows he's cornered and about to be punished. One last punch disguised as a kiss. Well, he says, I just got back from a little cruise. Major ports were Barcelona, Rome, Florence, Monaco, and a little smattering of French and Italian hideaways. He said, I had mixed feelings about going, but realized that if this tsunami we all see coming a few miles offshore has the potential of wiping out most travel in the foreseeable future, I figured I might as well get in something before the onslaught. Now, he says, it was nice in a lot of ways, as would be expected, but in other ways, it was unusually disconcerting. For one thing, very few people had masks, and there, thus there was a palatable scent in the air of COVID is a thing of the past. Now, Todd Hyen says, look, I, one would think that's a good thing, but it excluded, it exuded, rather, a very clear vibe of denial. Oddly enough, not wearing masks and, not, and believing <clears throat> COVID to be over, rather, to me, he says, is just another example of compliance to authority. Now, he says, I know that seems like a stretch, but if COVID were real, coupled with the truth that the vaccines do not work in terms of stopping the transmission, 
and we were told to again and again there would be no natural herd immunity without a working vaccine, and we still hear of infections rising, variants be cre- and variants being created, and hospitals being overcrowded. Why would people think the disease just died and disappeared? The answer is the reason is because we were told it was over. We were told suddenly that we didn't need masks and that we could party with friends, vaxxed or unvaxxed, and we could gather in huge crowds, get on cruise ships. Even no one, He says no one even cared that I was unvaccinated. We were told what was true, what was real, and what to worry or not worry about. And like sheep, most people blindly followed. So shouldn't I be happy? Well, he says if I were, it would be for all the wrong reasons. It is true, we are all happy when the slave owner puts down the whip. Whip or not, though, we are still slaves. And he says, I too bask in the sun of my controlled freedom. I went on a cruise, didn't I? After two years of not being allowed to. So I'm just as guilty of this sort of compliance. I'm one step closer to truth, though. I know this offer of freedom is a tactic, a ploy, and a ruse. I'll take a scrap of bread when it's offered, but I will not succumb to the complacency and forgive my master for his cruelty when he behaves, albeit for a moment, as my friend. Most everyone else seems fine to let bygones be bygones, but he says, I'm not. And I suspect most of you reading this are not as well. He says, the danger I see here in the masses just carrying on in complacent forgiveness is that they are encouraged to stay blind. Surely if they speak out against the atrocities the world has experienced over the last three years, they'd quickly be categorized as a troublemaker, a pariah, and a misfit. Just get over it, man. It's all over. Is it? He says, no, of course not. You and I know that. And it's all still going on in various ways, under the covers now, in the dark recesses of the culture, persecutions, continued efforts to vaccinate, particularly vaccinate children, warnings of an upcoming dark winter when restrictions will come back into the mainstream, on and on, you know what I'm speaking of. However, the mass attitude now, as per the Atlantic peace, is, well, nothing all that much really happened. No one died unnecessarily due to the COVID response. No one got sick. No one lost their job or their livelihood. No one suffered socially, particularly children wearing masks in school. No one suffered educationally. Nothing bad really happened. If you're still pissed about all that did happen, well, then you're overreacting. Much ado about nothing, so get over it, forgive, and forget. Now, he says, not everyone in the world has, has read that article, but he says, what I saw in Europe, it seems that most people, at least on physical observation, are basically taking on that attitude. And he says, it breaks my heart. I think about the countless mothers sitting by their children in countless hospitals, nurturing them through a totally unprecedented heart incident. I think of the countless families standing together at the funeral of a loved one, dead prematurely from a heart attack, blood clotting, or cancer, cause unknown, unless you want to apply the newly created diagnosis, sudden adult death syndrome. What the hell is that? A novel disease and now a common cause of death? Easy peasy explanation, eh? I think of the countless numbers of people suffering from a myriad of strange afflictions which suddenly appeared out of nowhere. I think again of countless people having suffered unconscionably and pointlessly after losing their jobs, their businesses, their life savings, and their livelihood. The countless children with lower IQs and those who've suffered social retardation due to the mask mandates. Social distancing and the mandatory online teaching at home with no socialization at all. He says, I could write a hundred pages describing all of this, but most people don't know. And if they do, they don't care. Or they just attribute all this horror to the cost of living. Some are lucky in life and some are not. 
Todd Hyen says, During my recent cruise, not a word was uttered about any of this. Thousands of people were encountered walking the streets of Rome, Florence, Barcelona, all laughing, eating, drinking, playing. Well, just beneath their feet, hidden a foot underground, there are skulls and bones of the fallen, all forgotten, and the perpetrators all forgiven. While I was occasionally shaken for my self-induced and compliant vacation reverie, he says my heart still ached, talking to all that all of the young, vibrant crew members on our ship. I would hear of their plans to be married, to create families, further their careers, and live fully their vibrant lives, followed with the admission that they all had to be vaccinated to get their current jobs on the ship. And so Todd Hyen asks, what really lies ahead for these beautiful children, children of God, so innocent and full of life? I would shake my head. Maybe none of this is true. Maybe I'm making more of it than it really is. Maybe they're right, and maybe it really wasn't that bad. Just a mistake made here and there that we really could get over. It's all fine. Let's move on. But he says, then a bone cracks under my foot, just a few inches from the surface of awareness, the truth. And I slip back into reality. That one really got me. That, I, that's, this, I've read a lot of essays on a daily basis, and this one, this was kind of a gut punch. Definitely uh, something worth considering. I've got a link to it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. By the way, one of the other things that I would ask you to take a look at, um, this is a totally different subject, but I'm I'm not a big fan of ranked choice voting in that it kind of requires you to be more of a strategist than just a voter or a citizen. But I recently read Thomas L. Knapp's case for ranked choice voting, and it has to do with, you know, well, you know, the libertarians spoiled things in Georgia. Why, uh, Herschel Walker would have won handily if it weren't for this libertarian candidate stealing his votes. And I have to agree, reluctantly, Thomas L. Knapp makes a really good point here, and that is you don't steal votes in the sense that votes don't belong to parties or to candidates. They belong to voters. And what that means is Georgia's voters didn't and they don't owe their votes to Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker. It's a candidate's job to earn those votes, and one in 50 decided, for whatever reasons, that they hadn't done so. But the libertarian, Chase Oliver, had. Now, he says, to the extent that spoiling is a problem, there's an easy solution, a solution which Mr. Oliver himself supports, and that is ranked-choice voting. If Georgia used ranked-choice voting, voters would have been able to choose more than one candidate, a first choice, a second choice, and so on. If no one candidate received a majority of the first-choice votes, the second-choice votes of the candidates with the fewest first-choice votes would have been automatically added to the other contenders' totals till someone received a majority instead of yet another expensive campaigns, you know, cycle. Why do they hate ranked choice voting, the Republicans and the Democrats? Well, because even if it didn't cost them many elections, they'd be embarrassed by the public revelation that far more than 2% of voters prefer alternatives to fear-based voting for the lesser evil major party players. He says our two-party system is built on the lie that the two parties can and do represent all of us. And the major party liars, as liars will do, attempt to shift the blame to spoilers who expose them. But he says, as Oliver tells Reason Magazine, you can't spoil what's already rotten. I have to admit, he's got me rethinking my stance on ranked choice voting because of this. Anyway, take a look at his article. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Two great articles to talk about in this segment. Look, I'm married to a uh, public school teacher, and I will be the first to tell you that great teachers are a blessing to any society. Now, I do run a little bit contrary to conventional wisdom, though, in that I believe great teachers can be found in settings other than government-run schools. In other words, you can take a great teacher from a government-run school, and if they're a great teacher, they will also excel in other settings. And I've got a great article here from Carrie McDonald, and uh, she's, she's talking about why former school teachers are finding success as education entrepreneurs. In fact, they're actually earning more money as education entrepreneurs. She says, when Emily Williams told her parents back in early 2020 she was leaving her job as a certified public school teacher to launch a micro school, they thought she was crazy. Both longtime public school educators themselves, they couldn't understand why Williams, who taught in Mississippi public schools for more than a decade, would want to give up a good district salary, insurance and retirement benefits to become an education entrepreneur. Williams, however, felt drawn to create an educational environment that would emphasize individual lear- individualized learning, personal autonomy, and mutual respect. In fact, Williams said, when you know that this is supposed to be what you should do, you're not afraid. So today, she's earning more money running her micro school, Micah's Mission, than she did as a public school teacher. And she enjoys deep personal fulfillment. Her low-cost micro school located in Vicksburg, Mississippi, serves about 50 K-12 students. Most of her students attend full-time, five days a week. Some attend part-time as homeschoolers and all experience a personalized educational model that's tailored to their unique abilities, interests, and goals. Carrie writes, several of William's students have significant special needs and intellectual and physical disabilities. But all students come together in her mixed-age, multi-level micro-school to learn at their own pace. They're supported by talented teachers who lead classes, offer tutoring, provide dyslexia supports and similar educational services, and facilitate each individual learner's academic and emotional development. A former special education teacher, Williams has long embraced the idea of differentiated instruction and observed the benefit of individualized education plans, customized for each child's needs. In the traditional system, said Williams, it became really apparent to me early on that I was doing something different. A lead teacher came to me and asked why I had eight separate lesson plans. I explained that I teach eight different levels of students. And if I'm going to reach these students, then this is how I'm going to do it. And I will adjust each day as needed. Now, accessibility is a key priority for Williams, and she works hard not to turn anyone away from her micro school. She relies on tuition and donations to provide scholarships and reduce the financial burden on families. She also received a micro-grant from the Vela Education Fund, a philanthropic nonprofit organization that supports the growth of innovative, non-traditional education models and schooling alternatives. Williams used those funds to enable more families to attend her program at little or no cost. Gee, I think anybody who was accusing her of being greedy would have to stop and pause with that news. Even with her full-access, low-cost educational model, Williams is now earning a solid competitive income while reaping the personal rewards of entrepreneurship and building something from scratch. A few states over in Kansas, Jessica Ramsey's had a similar experience as an education entrepreneur. Like Williams, Ramsey was a certified public school teacher for over a decade. Also, like Williams, she recognized the importance of differentiated education, particularly in early literacy, and gravitated toward helping slow and struggling readers. 
she wanted to be a full-time literacy specialist. But when that position became available in her school district, she was told she lacked the appropriate master's degree to get the job. Frustrated by these institutional constraints, Ramsey began thinking about venturing out on her own. The COVID disruption of 2020 provided a nudge as Ramsey started offering one-on-one tutoring for students in the greater Wichita area. Parents really valued Ramsey's creative approach and impact, and her clientele grew. In 2021, she resigned from her teaching job to run her literacy tutoring company, Farmhouse Phonics, full-time. Now, Ramsey is at capacity with tutoring clients who come to her warm and welcoming farmhouse studio for individualized, hands-on reading instruction. Her waitlist is growing so big that she's considering expanding her services by hiring other teachers to work with her at Farmhouse Phonics. So while there's no guarantee that this will be the outcome for other teachers-turned-entrepreneurs, Here you have two entrepreneurial educators who left their public school teaching positions within the last couple of years and now are both earning more than they did as experienced classroom teachers, but more importantly, are finding a depth of personal fulfillment in doing so. Williams says no step out of the system will be without challenges or struggles. But she says that's life. There are always challenges and struggles. This is an opportunity to choose your challenge and your struggle, and if you're motivated to make it happen, it will happen. I don't know why, but I thought that was just a really positive story. And, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm really not trying to, to bag on, you know, public school teachers or anybody like that. I don't want to, to make it sound like, yeah, you know, we just, we can't trust them. Like I said, I'm married to a public school teacher. But I do believe that uh, the, the government-run school system, the one-size-fits-all approach, I think it's, it's, it's not sufficient. And in fact, I actually have some concerns that it's a system that's being used to slowly and method, method, methodically indoctrinate kids into becoming little statists, little collectivists. Oh, you should hear the howls of outrage, though, when you point that out. Oof, that makes people angry. Anyway, I'll have the rest of her article posted in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I hope you'll check that out. Also, a great article from Joel Lim. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. How does government welfare stack up against private charity? He says it's no contest. Charity constitutes a robust alternative to government welfare, one that is far more ethical and far more effective. I'm not going to have time to go into great depth in this article, but... I'll share a couple of excerpts with you just to kind of whet your appetite for it. Joel Lim says, It's that time of year again, the time when Americans consume more than ever, but it's also the time when Americans give more than ever. Indeed, America's generosity as a whole is actually quite extensive, with Americans giving $471 billion in 2020, an all-time high. Now, that's more than what the vast... This, By the way, this was published back in... Uh, December of 2021. So this is almost a year old. He says, uh, what's, what's incredible here is that's more than what the vast majority of countries bring in for tax revenue. And 80% of those donations are from individuals, according to Giving USA. So Americans in general are incredibly generous. With 25% of Americans volunteering every year, you convert that to a dollar value, that's roughly $179 billion worth of work. Most of this charity comes from the rich, with 93% of households that make over $162,501 donating to charity, and 91% of households that make over $125,000 donating to charity. 
that surprise you? Aren't we supposed to believe the rich are greedy? They're only in this for themselves. You know, we can't trust them. But it turns out that philanthropy is a real thing. And here's the advantage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to depart from the article here for just a moment. The beautiful thing about philanthropy and private charity is that private charity is an alternative to government welfare. In fact, it's more ethical and it's more effective because it is a freely chosen decision to give where need is perceived. Now, I know you'll say, well, well, you know, Brian, there's government programs that do a good job and take care of people and feed hungry people and house them and, you know, educate them and so forth. And yes, I'm sure they do. But but does that come voluntarily? Because it seems to me that our, our welfare system is built upon, well, you know, you don't even see the money that comes out of your paycheck thanks to federal withholding laws. So it's just withheld. It's like it was never there. You just look at, oh, hey, here's my paycheck. Look what I earned. But you're not looking at the gross total. You're looking at your net pay, and you don't even think about that money that's that's taken out. I mean, some people look at the number. Oh, well, I took a chunk there. But that's where the money comes from for federal welfare. And, of course, how much of that money actually gets to the people in need? See, there's a lot of overhead. I don't know if you've noticed this. Maybe I'm the first one to tell you, but our federal government is bloated. I mean, it is like beached whale bloated it's awful and it costs a lot to have all those people pushing paper and all those bureaucrats and functionaries here and there it's a very expensive proposition but the but the bottom line is it's also not a voluntary donation that you're making your conscience may say well you know they take that money i trust them to put it to good use it's it's helping somebody somewhere perhaps but the money was taken from you under the threat of, look, you're going to give this to us. We'll actually take it. But if you make a stink about it or you try to withhold it from us, um, we will send men with guns and badges to take away your stuff, take away your freedom, take your life if you resist vigorously enough. Contrast that with people who recognize that there is need and right where they are standing in their community, they either donate their time, their, their means or whatever, to help people, but they do it voluntarily. That's a free choice that they make. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. This is The Brian Hyde Show.